2: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, the job market and what it means for all of us. I'm Tom Busby in New York.
3: I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where we're looking ahead to a meeting of some of Europe's top economists and business people in France at a time when Eurozone growth is stuttering. I'm Doug Krisner. The challenges of developing
4: artificial intelligence in China. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Next week, we get a
5: fly-on-the-wall view of the last Fed meeting. Coming up, we'll look ahead to the release of Fed Minutes.
6: That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the
2: Bloomberg Business app. good day to you i'm tom busby and we begin today's program with the june jobs report coming out this coming friday joining me to talk about what's expected and what it all means bloomberg's global economics and policy editor michael mckee now before we talk about june let's start by looking back at may's data there was 339,000 jobs added way more than forecast a sign of a pretty healthy labor market gains in professional business services government health care And very important to the Fed, we saw wage growth slow, the same time inflation started to pull back.
7: It was a confusing report because the uh, uh, establishment survey, the 339,000 was so strong, but on the household side, we lost jobs. The household survey produces the unemployment rate and it jumped from 3.4% to 3.7%. So the Fed's going to really be watching this coming month to see if that same dynamic plays out. Right now, the forecast for unemployment is unchanged at 3.7%. But uh, we'll have to see uh, when we get to next Friday uh, what the, the final number is and how it compares with job creation.
2: And what, what kind of uh, raw number were you looking at in ads?
7: Well, here's the funny part. Uh, we've had a lot of strong economic data over uh, the last week. And people have been talking about how the economy is in better shape than thought. But economists have been marking down their forecast for job growth. We're at 195 now. Earlier uh, in the last week, we were at about 220. So I'm not sure why the pessimism, but people are thinking that maybe the trend is finally breaking and that we will get uh, lower uh, job creation, although that's still very strong, uh, lower job creation and slightly higher unemployment, even if we're seeing strength in uh, other areas of the economy.
2: But that's something right in the Fed's playbook, right? That's what they're hoping to see?
7: That's what they're hoping to see. The Fed's been hoping that we would see a slowdown in consumer spending, a slowdown in, therefore, business investment, and then a, uh, a slowdown in hiring. And the fewer people that get jobs, that's less money that goes into spending, and the overall economy cools. Uh, it has. It's, it's the standard playbook for central banks, and it just hasn't worked yet.
2: Well, uh, speaking of the Fed, just this past week, we saw Chairman Powell was in Madrid at an ECB event, and uh, he said some things that really rattled investors.
5: A strong majority of committee participants expect that it will be appropriate to raise interest rates two or more times by the end of this year. Inflation pressures continue to run high in the process of getting inflation back down to 2% has a long way to go. That is a mouthful.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Fed had uh, forecast at their last meeting that we would see the possibility of two more rate increases. And he seems to be underlining that Uh, the market had only priced in one. So he seems to be interested in pushing them to add to that. And we did see the swaps market react uh, and, and at least start to price in the idea of two. But remember, the Fed has been saying all along it's very data dependent. And we haven't got a lot of employment or inflation data yet. We will be getting that. And so for the Fed, uh, it's a question of, do they really have to carry through with two rate increases? Or will the data give them an out, maybe only do one? Uh, And the market is kind of thinking the same way.
2: And we've still got four weeks before the the next meeting that they have. And then six weeks after that, right, in September.
7: Yes. So we will see uh, one more CPI report before the Fed meeting. And of course, next Friday is the jobs report. And those will give us a pretty good idea of uh, where we are at the moment. The question is, what's the long run view? And since we only get uh, one report, it's going to be harder for the Fed to make a forecast that works for the month of August, uh, taking the month of August off and then uh, not not until September having another meeting. We we will have Jay Powell in Jackson Hole. So if he has something to say, we'll hear it. But the Fed itself won't be voting again. So you're right. It's going to be an interesting vacuum for the market to fill.
2: But so far, what the Fed has done took a while, but it appears to, to be bearing fruit.
7: Well, they have brought down the uh, inflation rate, and it, it, it's, it's about halved. But it's considered the low-hanging fruit. I mean, we saw energy prices in particular fall off and gasoline prices. Now the question is, is there embedded inflation in the core rate of inflation that's going to be hard to eradicate? Are companies raising prices because they still have to pay more for their inputs? Are they raising prices because they can? People are used to it. Uh, Is labor still an issue in terms of uh, having to make up the cost of additional wages for people? So uh, we're not out of the woods. And the Fed thinks that it's going to be much harder to get that last 2% wrung out of inflation than the first 6%.
2: Yeah, and, and Chairman Powell said it's not this year. It's not next year. It looks like it's going to be 2025, hopefully.
7: Yeah, that's a cons- they're being conservative because they have been fooled, and it's been much stickier than they thought. Uh, the Fed is thinking 2025. We are going to see inflation come down because the, rent, the whole rent question we've talked about a lot, uh, that it takes a long time for housing costs to get into and out of the inflation data they're going to, that's finally going to hit and we're going to see some drops in inflation, but then does that continue? And that's something they don't know because we've started to see some home price and rent uh, increases. And now it may take another six months or a year to get into the data, but uh, it's going to be out there and it'll keep them farther away from 2% if that indeed happens.
2: Well, Mike, I want to uh, shift gears a little bit here and talk about the kinds of jobs that are going away, the kind of jobs that are uh, we're seeing gains in. Uh, the last couple of months, we've seen, or, or so far this year, hundreds of thousands of tech jobs that have been, some of the big techies. Now, they we all know that they overhired during the pandemic when things were, were nobody knew which way we we're going to go. But uh, as you have said before, every Company is a tech company, so a lot of those people are finding work. You know, with AI, it looks like things are shifting in that in that marketplace for those jobs, tech jobs.
7: Yeah, I'm not smart enough to know how easily you can transition to an AI job from another kind of tech job. And of course, when we talk about tech, it's a very large category, everything from hardware to software and all different kinds of software. Uh, but uh, it does look like that category has stabilized because people can find more jobs. Uh, the thing that was slow was temporary hiring, because usually when you're seeing an economic ramp up, companies add people on a temporary basis because they're worried about whether or not they'll have the businesses to sustain hiring them. And that turned around last month. We saw some gains in, in temporary hiring. Uh, health care has always been a uh, – last couple of years has been a very strong category, and that saw gains. As we get older, we need more health care. Uh, and so um, – <laughs> We're, we're looking to see where the weakness is going to come. It has been in manufacturing. Manufacturing was losing jobs for a bit, but now it seems to have added, not at a huge pace, but we're starting to see more production and more hiring there and construction. I know you've been following this. Uh, construction jobs have really surprised, so has the housing market, but builders have been putting up houses as fast as they can and they need construction workers And uh, now we're seeing the impact of some of the uh, measures Congress passed in the last year, the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act that incentivize constructing, especially for green energy, uh, new facilities. And we're seeing a huge amount of construction spending on business facilities, which means they need more people as well. So construction, which is normally very uh, affected by interest rates, is not <laughs> this yeah, time. confounding. And that's, confounding, uh, that's yeah. another surprise. So uh, none of this is working out as the mod- previous models would have suggested.
2: And, and another thing, you talked about manufacturing, and, and this is timely because the UAW, this month in July, is talking to all of Detroit's big three about a new contract. And boy, has that industry changed over the last three or four years dramatically because they know, the UAW... Electric cars do not have the components that gas engine cars have and therefore do not need the same amount of workers putting it together to assemble those cars. So they've got their work cut out from the UAW. It is
7: going to be a very interesting negotiation. Uh, Labor relations in the auto industry have gotten better. So hopefully uh, they will be able to avoid a strike. And many years ago now, Uh, doesn't seem like it to us old guys, but they went to two-tier wages with younger people coming in at uh, lower wage levels. And so that has helped the automakers a lot. Now, how they handle a technological change rather than an age change uh, is going to be very interesting. And what kinds of people do you need? What kinds of jobs
2: are you going to have to fill? Well, Michael, thank you so much for being here. That was Michael McKee, our global economics and policy editor. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, how about a trip to France? The summer economic conference coming to Aix-en-Provence. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
0: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc.
1: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Carter Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Carter and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cartereconomicforum.com.
2: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, big global gathering on artificial intelligence It's in the works for next week. But first, after scraping through a difficult winter, Europe's major economies are stagnating as the impact of higher interest rates now kicking in. It's an interesting time for some of the continent's top economists, policymakers, and business people to be gathering in the south of France for the annual economic conference in the city of Aix-en-Provence. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll.
3: Tom it's a staple of the European economists calendar this conference organized by the French group Cercle des Economistes or the Circle of Economists the theme this year is renewing hope and features politicians CEOs and some ECB policymakers joining the discussions as well Bloomberg's Paris reporter Caroline Conan will be there and she joins us now for more on this Caroline many of our listeners may not be familiar with Aix-en-Provence can you tell us a bit about first of all where this event is taking place
8: Stephen, I think you have to close your eyes and imagine the village atmosphere of Provence. So it's in the southeast of France, less than one hour north of Marseille. You can hear the sound of the cicadas because it's the beginning of summer, and you have some concerts, some opera at night. That's where the conference is taking place, probably one of my favorite events of the year, even though sometimes the weather might get very hot occasionally, close to the uh, 40 degrees Celsius. Uh, So uh, most importantly, I would say it's one of the best events to mingle with French executives and ministers because they are relaxed, they're very open to conversations, and sometimes they actually share some news with you Uh, they really enjoy the conference because it's also the same weekend as the Opera Festival in Aix-en-Provence and it comes at a quiet period before the first half earnings season so not too much pressure it's kind of like Davos in France that's why we call it here the French Davos
3: aha well you're making us all very jealous the prospect of uh, of that setting anyway for the organization talk to us about the key topics they're going to be up for discussion
8: As you mentioned this year, the main topic is renewing hope, which couldn't be of course more appropriate given the uh, geopolitical uncertainties, the war in Ukraine, the rebellion of uh, uh, Wagner and Russia, and the concerns of also on the economic front uh, about a credit crunch and and the danger of a possible recession. So we'll get some uh, general comments about all that, about the outlook for the economy, but also some of the other issues, supply chain, innovation, labor shortages, for example, but as you know, also likes uh, expanding uh, the topics for discussion. So for example, the ECB uh, President Christine Lagarde is doing a panel about gender equality. You've also got the uh, former prime minister and the presidential hopeful, Edouard Philippe, who'll talk about choices for the future of society. So there will be also a lot of discussions about ecological awareness, healthcare, work-life balance. There is one panel, for example, which is called working to live or living to work so that's a pretty interesting choice Uh, and of course education the younger generations will also be uh, discussed and on the other side of the spectrum the uh, retirement because we're just a few months after President Macron passed his very controversial pension reform
3: Yeah, I mean, look, it's a fascinating set of discussions. I do think it's very interesting, as you say, that when we have this summer setting and the idea that, you know, people are perhaps a little bit more relaxed, they'll take time to dig into the broader economic issues uh, that perhaps we don't get to during the rest of the year. But having said that, we have got a couple of ECB names are going to be attending as well. What should we be expecting to hear from them?
8: There are no less than five central bankers attending, including four from the ECB: President Lagarde, but also the French Ville-Roy de Gallo, the Portuguese, and the Spanish. And also separately, you got the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey, who's going to be there on the Sunday. So very interesting. And it's not usually a place where Christine Lagarde breaks a lot of news, but some of the others, they like talking. They like uh, to be a bit more open-minded to talking on the sidelines. So we'll check if they give. Any signals regarding the next ECB meeting in July? And also, of course, uh, the uh, uh, highly expected uh, September meeting. What will be the policy after these uh, next meetings? How many more rate hikes are we going to see? That will be some of the key questions. And who knows if we're lucky, I might actually have an exclusive sit down with one of those central bankers. And my gut feeling this will actually happen.
3: Oh, we're all all wishing for that as well, Caroline. Let's set ourselves up for that ECB conversation, though, and bring you some of the interview that we had with the ECB vice president, Luís de Guindos, in recent days. He's been speaking to Bloomberg at the ECB forum in Sintra in Portugal and told our editor at large, Francine Lacroix, that the September rate hike decision was open.
9: We are not uh, done. There is more ground to be covered. And, uh, you know, the key factor is going to be the evolution of inflation. And uh, so what we want to, to indicate is very clearly our determination to reduce inflation and to bring inflation down to our definition of price stability.
1: So what happens f- for future interest rate hikes? I know you're data dependent. <laughs> I know September I- is a question mark. But given the data points we have now, are you just going to power ahead and, and hike?
9: Well, I think that uh, July is a fait accompli, hmm? it has been indicated and uh, you know it's quite clear. September, September will depend, you know, uh, you know, what are the factors that are going to determine what happens in September will be our bank lending survey that I think that is very important because it's going to be an indication of how our monetary policy is transmitted to the the financial system and from the financial system to the rest of the economy and how, you know, the, the tightening of financing conditions fit through. Uh, to the real economy the second will be uh, you know our projections in september we will have a new round of projections and finally the evolution of uh, of core inflation of underlying inflation that i think that is uh, you know very relevant in the present circumstances so these are the three elements that we will take into consideration but uh, uh, well i said that in july it was a fait accompli or it is a fait accompli in september i think that is uh, is open
1: do you believe, Vice President, this is a matter of credibility for the central bank to get to 2% no matter what happens?
9: Well, I think that is very important. It's our mandate. <laughs> you know, it's not only, well, credibility is very relevant, but as well, uh, you know, we have a definition of price stability and our mandate is to 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 to, to reach and to guarantee that uh, price stability. So for us, is key.
3: That's the ECB's Vice President, Luis de Guindos, speaking to Bloomberg last week. Caroline Connell, what are the other names that you'll be watching out for in Exxon Provence aside from the central bankers?
8: So in between, you're going to have a multitude of French executives, including Carrefour, Sanofi, LVMH, Airbus, Total, Engie. And also all the banks, BNP, Société Générale. And then you've got a lot of members of the French government, including the finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, the uh, European minister, Laurence Boone, that we're going to talk to on Friday. Uh, And I was mentioning earlier the presidential hopeful, Edouard Philippe, that will be also interesting to see him there.
3: We'll bring you those interviews on Bloomberg Radio and television as well. Laurence Boone, always a very interesting name to listen out for. Of course, she's former chief economist at the OECD as well. So somebody well known uh, to the listeners and viewers at Bloomberg. Uh, Talk to us a bit about the economic context for this event, Caroline, because it's it's happening at a time in France where the recent economic data has been quite mixed.
8: Yeah, well, you've got the economic context and the political context. Of course, uh, inflation uh, in France remains above 5%. So it's actually slightly lower than the average in the eurozone, which is closer to 6%. But uh, clearly, the French growth is expected to remain subdued, uh, about plus uh, 0.6% this year after 2.5% last year. So that would be uh, below uh, the 1% growth target that Macron's government was counting on to cut the budget deficit. And that will be another key discussion in X is whether Emmanuel Macron will be able to pass more reforms after the very controversial pension reform, whether he'll be able uh, to uh, cut this uh, uh, budget deficit and the very high French debt. Um, We've also seen business and consumer confidence also deteriorating uh, because of high rates, of course, but also because of high food inflation. And in spring, remember, you had even uh, Fitch uh, cutting France's credit rating. So very interesting economic discussions ahead.
3: Plenty to watch out for then. Thank you to Bloomberg's Caroline Conant in Paris. And we will bring you coverage of the Aix-en-Provence Economic Conference on Bloomberg Radio and Television as well. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Day. Break Europe beginning at 6 a.m. in London and 1 a.m. on Wall Street. Tom?
2: Merci, Stephen. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, here comes the World Artificial Intelligence Conference in Shanghai. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.
6: Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, to London, DAB Digital Radio, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend.
2: I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Investors tracking the coming World Artificial Intelligence Conference in Shanghai very closely. For more on the conference and what to expect, let's go to our Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host, Doug Krisner. Tom, we know ChatGPT and other generative AI
4: applications have sparked intense interest in the promise of artificial intelligence. And for China, it sparked a new obsession, competing with U.S. titans, names like Alphabet and Microsoft in the race for revolutionary apps for both business and consumers. Joining me now is Alan Wan. He is Bloomberg Senior Editor and our Shenzhen Bureau Chief, joining us from our studios in Shenzhen. Alan, thanks for being with us. This is being branded as a world conference. Now I know you're gonna be there covering world AI. It's happening in China, obviously, and I'm wondering whether the story here is really about Chinese firms using this as a platform to showcase their potential
10: and determination to compete with companies in the US. Do you think that's likely? Oh, for sure. I mean, all the big names are gonna be there. SenseTime, Baidu, I mean, those are the, uh, the two main uh, Chinese companies that rolled out ChatGPT services. So we're going to see a lot more. I mean, I'll see a lot of startups and see what they're working on. Uh, This is a great opportunity to see how far along China is in terms of catching up to U.S. in terms of AI.
4: Now, there are two important issues that I think we have to address. One is the government, which we can talk more about in a moment. The other is the semiconductor issue that AI is reliant upon. So we are told the Biden administration is planning to tighten export controls on sales of some artificial intelligence chips to China. That proposal is expected we are hearing in July. And it would revise current U.S. export controls aimed at making it more difficult to sell some chips to China without a license. This move may be aimed in part at NVIDIA's A800 chip. Last week on Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, we spoke with Vlad Savov, our tech editor in Hong Kong, and he offered some insight.
3: NVIDIA had the restrictions in October from the U.S. government, and it developed China-specific chips, which were less powerful, and now it seems like the government is going to increase its sanctions, get even further into it. And without those chips, like you say, it's very questionable that Chinese companies will be able to compete.
4: That is Bloomberg's Vlad Savov. Uh, Alan... It seems like without access to the type of computing power that's necessary, these graphics processors that basically are being used by companies uh, that are playing in AI, without access to that technology, it's a very, very high hurdle to try to advance the technology going forward. Wouldn't you agree with that?
10: I I think it's a challenge, for sure. Uh, But this has been going for a while, right? Um, I mean, China has been put all kinds of uh, sanctions um, in preventing a lot of these uh, U.S. tech companies from exporting to the U.S. And NVIDIA, of course, is the, uh, I mean, they, they have the killer chip, you know, so to speak, right? The accelerated chip that a lot of these open AI services rely on. But I, I was—I I would argue that um, China's going to be able to find a workaround. I mean, um, they they have so far uh, in many different areas, I think they're going to be able to try to outsource it from other, uh, you know, other countries. And I, I think that domestically, there are, uh, companies that are producing um, you know similar chips, maybe not as robust as Nvidia, but, uh, but I think that is definitely a challenge. And then now you've also got a lot of uh, venture capital invested uh, you know in this area as well. I mean, they're catching up to the US. So I think you know you've got that going on. you've got the government as well, uh, the big fund investing in uh, developing similar type chips, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I think that you have a lot of uh, other vendors. I, th- I think in the short term, yes, it's going to be an obstacle. But I, I think that uh, China will figure figure a way out.
4: Let's talk about the role of the government. You just mentioned it there in one case. We know China is a vastly different landscape from what, we're, what we have here in the U.S. And obviously, the American companies that have been playing in artificial intelligence in many respects are as much as three years ahead. Uh, and I'm wondering now, because a lot of the AI in terms of these large language models that are required to train AI programs. We know the data situation in China is very, very different vis-a-vis the internet than it is in the West. And I'm wondering whether this is going to make it increasingly difficult for
10: China to play catch up as well. Oh, for sure. Uh, I think you've know you you've got the data issue, there's, there's two problems, right? First is that you know there's a lot of data regulation in China and the government has already said that it would have to approve any kind of a rollout of any kind of uh, generative AI services. You got that, that problem. And then the problem of uh, you know scraping the data, right? Uh, a lot of the you know uh, data in China, uh, you know, comes from the Chinese internet and it's censored, um, so it's not not going to be as robust as what you get in the West. Uh, but that said, you know, in the U.S., you, know, you have problems with um, you know a lot of you know fake news and disinformation as well. Um, in, in China, uh, one issue I, I think is that you know a lot of chinese they get the information from uh, the super app right uh, wechat right so it's it's a bit different from the us where you have the uh, you know everyone uses the internet i i think that there are limitations to that uh, the fact that you know you can't uh, you know scrape the uh, the chinese internet um, for lots of reasons there are also privacy issues as well but uh, it, it is it is a challenge um but I, I think that in some ways it creates opportunity for some of these companies like Baidu and uh, SenseTime, Sense just because they know what the ground rules are. Uh, they know that you know um, certain things are going to be prohibited, and it's going to be up to the uh, all, all these um, what do you call it? internet uh, platforms. Mm to censor all this stuff. so there's a, But it's not something that's new, is it? I mean, you've got, in China, you've got a Chinese internet, right? People right. use Baidu and all that. So it still works, you know what I'm saying?
4: Well, you mentioned Baidu, uh, and I saw a piece on the Bloomberg Terminal over the past week. They were comparing the Baidu Ernie bot to ChatGPT, and by a couple of measures, Baidu, at least, is claiming that the Ernie bot now beats ChatGPT. So to your point, there are companies in China that are pushing the envelopes so to speak, and trying to develop certain types of AI technology, more on the consumer side. But I'm also curious as what's happening on the business side. Is there a conversation happening that has to do with how AI might be useful for manufacturing or even healthcare in China?
10: Oh, for sure. I mean, the, 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 what they're planning what, what I hear anyway is they're planning to uh, create these uh, chatbots to help manufacturers you know, analyze consumption trends um, you know there are a lot of uh, business applications. I mean, for um, Baidu, they plan to incorporate their Ernie bot into everything they, they're doing, cl- cloud computing, uh, in their EVs. So I, I, th- I think that um, yeah, I mean they are there are actually uh, I mean, large, uh, not just cons- consumption, but uh, you know, uh, business software type applications. Uh, that can really use this kind of AI technology. And that's, and that, and that's an area where China lacks relative to the U.S., right? In you know, Business software.
4: We were mentioning uh, the funding issue uh, a moment ago, and I'm curious, in terms of trying to find capital to support this type of growth in China, where is it coming from? Where will it come from?
10: Yeah, I, I, that's the thing about it, is that if if you look at it, what's been happening in the last couple of years, right? This has been this big tech crackdown, and a lot of uh, you know venture capital into China has sort of plunged, right? But then uh, over the last uh, you know several months, um, we're seeing the, the, the value of deals uh, in this area surging. Um, you're saying like from the last couple of years, half of U.S. levels, and now they're, you know, they're two-thirds of where the U.S. is. So a lot of money is coming from uh, these venture capitalists and also from the government as well. I mean, early this year, the government uh, said that uh, it was uh, trying to get private capital to work with uh, the government in order to uh, you know, de- sort of develop these uh, technologies, um, especially in high-tech chips, uh, in order to compete with the West. So uh, you, you've seen a sea change in the way the government has approached um, b- big tech, and when I say big tech, uh, I'm saying I'm saying basically uh, some ways outside of Alibaba, Tencent. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fact that now you know a lot of money is going into any companies that are working on uh, high, you know like these kind of chips uh, that are being used for AI
4: Alan thank you so much I look forward to your coverage in the week ahead from the world AI conference in Shanghai Alan Wan is a Bloomberg senior editor also our Shenzhen Bureau chief I'm Doug Krisner you can join Brian Curtis and myself weekdays here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong 6
2: p.m. on Wall Street Tom? Thank you, Doug. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we're about to get more insight from the Fed because here come those Fed minutes, and they come at a very important time. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. As we've been reporting, the Fed is watching the jobs report heading our way this coming Friday. Also, this coming week, we'll get to be a fly on the wall when the Fed releases the minutes from its latest policy meeting. And for more on that part of the story, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On host, Joe Matthew. Thanks, Tom. We're
5: going to look ahead now to the release of Fed minutes next week as investors try to get inside the minds of policymakers. Not that Chair Jay Powell has been vague on this lately. At our last meeting, the, F- the Federal Open Market Committee decided to maintain the target range for the federal funds rate at five to five and a quarter percent while continuing the process of significantly reducing our securities holdings. We made this decision in light of the distance we've come in tightening policy, the uncertain lags in monetary policy, and the potential headwinds from credit tightening. As noted in the FOMC's Summary of Economic Projections, a strong majority of committee participants expect that it will be appropriate to raise interest rates two or more times by the end of this year. Two or more times by the end of this year. That's Powell from recent testimony on Capitol Hill. It's just a little over a week ago, and he's reiterated that line several times. Joining us here in Washington, Bloomberg's Kate Davidson and Eric Wasson with a view on the Fed. And on Congress, as the Fed also deals with a response to the bank failures earlier this year. Kate, let's start with you here and the release of Minutes. What are you looking for?
11: Already. That's crazy. I know. Been, how's that sorry. possible? I don't know. Well, it's just because we've been, it's been the nonstop Jay Powell show, so we forgot. How true. It's been almost three weeks since the meeting. Yeah, so I think... Um, you know, we, we kind of know a lot from the projections that we got. You know, normally we'd be looking for those minutes to, to just glean more insight from how big is the group of officials that want to go further and thinks the Fed keeps, need to ra- keeps needs to keep raising rates. But we know from the dot plot that we just got that there are a lot of them. So um, I think that we'll, you know, we'll be looking to see um, uh, how, you know, is that likely to happen in July, in September? Are officials uh, thinking they want to shift to an every other meeting uh, stand? I mean, we heard a little bit from Powell talking about that idea, saying, you know, consecutive rate hikes aren't off the table, Mm -hmm. which is a little puzzling because he kind of framed this as, well, it's a moderating the pace we're going to. Pause a meeting and then go, but now he's saying they could go back to back again. So, I think there that uh, you know anything we can learn about about that and the pace, but just it really it really just seems like the group of hawks is surprisingly big right now. Um, like all these worries about the banking crisis yeah. seem to really have faded. Eric, what is
5: Congress think of the Fed at this point. Does it really fall along party lines?
10: I do see a real uh, difference between the way uh, Republicans are approaching Powell versus Michael Barr. You know, they seem to be very concerned about uh, what Barr could be up to, could be proposing. Uh, you know, flagging the idea that this could actually have an impingement on bank risk taking and the economy. Versus, I, you know, when we asked uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, pretty wide survey of members talking about Powell. There seems to be general praise. They say he's humble, he acknowledges mistakes. So I think they're trying to, to sort of play good cop uh, back up there a little bit.
5: Moving beyond transitory, finally.
10: Right. So I know, you know, they do feel that he does bear shoulder some of the blame for acting, you know, too late to, to restrain inflation, mm-hmm. but they tend to focus the fire on Biden, someone they can actually in, uh, unseat.
5: We're still looking for two more as the consensus,
11: yeah, I mean, two at least two, right? it's kind of interesting. That's how Powell has been wording it. It's not entirely different from what he's said, but he's, uh, you know, we've all taken note. It's been two or more, uh, which again he points to the dot plot. You look at the projections, and that is what it says. But he's not not trying to shy away from that. He's mm-hmm. not playing that down. Two two or more um, is the expectation. He must be
5: confounded year. by a market that's still betting on rate cuts.
11: It is. It is pretty interesting, although I think every time he gets out there, you know, they inch up and inch up and you get data like you saw. It's all very strong still.
5: Great conversation. And many thanks to Bloomberg's Kate Davidson on the Fed and Bloomberg's Eric Wasson on Congress. I'm Joe Matthew in
2: Washington. Hope you have a happy fourth. Tom, back to you in New York. Thank you, Joe, and that was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Joe Matthew reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays, one to three p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.